Hi, welcome to the Second Amendment Clubhouse. I'm so glad that you could be here and join us today. Uh, we're just waiting for our two guests to join us. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I am Gail Trotter. I'm a liberty-loving, tyranny-hating lawyer based in Washington, D.C., and my goal is to keep you informed and to be your advocate in Washington, D.C. I see that Aaron Murphy has joined us. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. We're just waiting for Amy to join us, so I'm just giving a little background about myself before I introduce you and Aaron and uh, Amy. So if you are interested in learning about the Bill of Rights, issues of political importance, controversial national debates, then feel free to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Right in DC, The Gail Trotter Show. And I try to keep up to date, keep you up to date on all the things going on in Washington, DC that percolate out to the rest of the country. And I am so delighted that we have our two guests today, Erin and Amy. I think Amy might be joining us a little bit later because she is actually giving another uh, talk on the Second Amendment right now for the Federalist Society. And I actually see now Amy has joined us. Welcome, Amy. I'm not sure she can get in, so let me see if I can. Here we go, I invited her to speak. So let's see if Amy can join us. Amy, can you hear us? Let me see if I can add her another way. Oh, here we go, what, what, Amy. What about now? I can hear you now, can you hear us? I can. Excellent. Um, I don't know. I, so I have no idea how this app works um, or if there's a video component, if I'm doing this right. Um, so hopefully, hopefully I figured it out now. I am so delighted that you and Aaron could join me. This is only the second clubhouse that I have sponsored. So like you, I'm learning about this new app, but I have heard that a lot of people are really excited about it and getting so much information about it. And I felt like it's so important to, to go, go out there and talk about the Second Amendment and our important uh, rights under the Bill of Rights wherever people will listen to us. So I'm so delighted. We're all going to learn this together, I think. <laughs> well, awesome. let me... I, I'm, I'm here for it. Let me introduce to you our two, uh, two women who are legal experts on policy and the Second Amendment. Let me start with Erin. Erin Murphy is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Kirkland and Ellis. Her practice focuses on the Supreme Court, appellate, and constitutional litigation. She has argued before both the Supreme Court and most of the federal courts of appeal appeals on a wide variety of issues, including the scope of the First Amendment, which was our discussion last week, the Takings Clause, the Federal Power Act, the Appointments Clause, and the National Labor Relations Act. Erin has also argued several appeals defending Second Amendment rights, including the appeal that produced the opinion the Supreme Court granted cert to, 
Review in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. versus the City of New York. Aaron has been recognized by the National Law Journal as one of the nation's outstanding women lawyers and a rising star and has been ranked by Chambers and Partners as one of the nation's top appellate lawyers. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us this evening. My pleasure. Looking forward to talking a little Second Amendment. And let me introduce Amy. She is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And you all might be familiar with the Heritage Foundation. It is the conservative think tank that sits right on Capitol Hill. A lot of lawmakers rely on the Heritage Foundation to inform the bill writing process, and it is a very, very powerful organization advocating for our rights and for people across the country. Amy, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. This is um, talking about the Second Amendment is one of my favorite things, and and to be here with with you and with Aaron, um, I'm absolutely ecstatic. And just to give you a little bit about my background with the Second Amendment, I am also a lawyer. I'm in private practice, but I also do political commentary. And I was writing a lot of op-eds about the Second Amendment and how it disproportionately affects women to have more uh, gun regulations and so-called gun control legislation because over 90% of violent crime happens without a firearm being present. And so in those circumstances, guns help women reverse the balance of power. And I was called by the Senate Republicans in the wake of the Newtown tragedy when Congress held its first hearing on gun violence And you might remember this was during January of 2013 when President Obama was pushing for much stricter gun control laws. And I was able to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee about how gun laws disproportionately affect women. And so that's why I was really excited to have Aaron and Amy join us tonight to talk about this particular aspect of it. But of course, it has meaning for all law-abiding citizens across the country. And I feel like, you know, the past is the prologue. We're seeing the same thing happen with the Biden administration that we saw happen with the Obama administration. So I'm going to start with Aaron. Could you give us a little background on your interest and your experience on the Second Amendment? Sure. So so I really came to the Second Amendment through uh, like through the lens of being a lawyer um, because I you know really first started doing some work on it at, at one of the firms I was at several years ago. I've been at a few a few since, but. My law partner, Paul Clement, argued, uh, he argued at the time as the Solicitor General in the, the, the Seminole Heller case, and then also argued the City of Chicago versus McDonald case. And so we started doing some work, uh, you know, continued doing some work after that at the firm that we were at when I went to work with him. And early on, I worked on uh, an amicus brief for the NRA about basically some questions that were left open after those cases about the standard of review for reviewing gun laws. That was the first case that I ever was involved in just writing 
um, an amicus, a friend of the court brief about, you know, what we thought the right standard should be. And over the years since then, I've just done increasingly more work on the issue. Um, you know, we can talk about some of the, the various different cases and issues I've worked on over the years, but we've you know, been, been stayed very active in the space and kind of had a chance to argue. I specialize in doing appellate arguments, so a lot of times, you know, arguing cases when they get to the courts of appeals and then filing lots of, unfortunately, you know, many of them unsuccessful cert petitions because the Supreme Court seems to not want to take all these cases very often. Uh, but but we, we, we had success with one of them and we've got another one pending right now. And um, so most of my work has, you know, my I've really learned so much about it and the capacity of just doing cases where, uh, you know, what's kind of fun about doing Second Amendment work is it's up until Heller for a long time, the courts didn't really, most of them and the Supreme Court wasn't, they weren't really recognizing the Second Amendment right as an individual right. So unlike with so many constitutional rights that have been established for a long time and that have a lot of case law around them, you're really often dealing with issues on a bit of a blank slate and learning about the history in the first instance and looking at, you know, how did the framers understand this? How did people understand this right back, you know, in in England, in the colonies, in the 1800s, and getting to do a lot of just really interesting constitutional work and historical work from that perspective because so many of these issues really didn't come up and, and start getting resolved until the, ba- the past decade. So uh, it's... It's been a lot of fun and really interesting stuff to work on. Two things jump out at me from what you shared, Erin. The idea that when these laws are challenged and they go to the courts, you take them up as a lawyer, uh, but it's hard once these laws are passed to get the courts to hear the cases, to get them to give the right results. And you mentioned that that uh, about your uh, partner, Paul Clement, who was Solicitor General and ultimately worked on the McDonald case, which had to do with gun regulations in the city of Chicago in the state of Illinois. And I'm going to link to this really great op-ed by this woman talking about how gun control regulations actually harm minority communities more and people in disadvantaged neighborhoods because the high costs of these regulations and the complexities of the law make these communities unarmed. The law-abiding, peaceful people in these communities are kind of sitting ducks for the people with malintent. So I am really interested in digging into this further when we get further into this discussion. I want to switch to Amy now. Can you give us a little bit of background on your interest and experience with the Second Amendment? Sure. Um, so I, I I didn't grow up with guns. I you know if you'd have asked me in, in law school, you know, are you going to be working in the Second Amendment sphere? I'd have you know, been like, no, probably not. Um, so I kind of came into this in a roundabout way. Um, so my personal interest in in firearms uh, didn't really develop until um, undergrad. I was a soccer player, and I got to know some some girls on the rifle team, some hardy Texans who, who took me shooting um, for the first time, and uh, really sort of got me um, into the, this mindset of no, you can actually be empowered by by owning firearms as a woman. This is not something for, you know, middle-aged white men. Um, you know, and, and then clerking at a public 
defender's office, I think for the first time really seeing um, crime and, and the, the effects of crime in a, in a very personal way, um, and violent crime in particular, um, you know, it really hit at me. Um, again, it just in this deep way. Um, and then fast forward a, a couple of years and it starts coinciding with um, just opportunities in, in my career that uh, sort of transformed into you know, now, now largely doing um, Second Amendment almost full time. Um, so I came to the Heritage Foundation uh, focusing on overcriminalization. So this idea of we have too many laws, no one knows what they are, we're putting people in prison because they packaged their fish wrong according to the laws of Argentina and, and somehow that's now against the law for us. Um, you know, just uh, broadly overcriminalization. And as part of that, I started writing on uh, the Second Amendment rights of nonviolent felons. Um, so this idea of why can't Martha Stewart own a gun? Um, she's objectively less of a danger to the public than I am. Uh, and that's not because I'm a danger to the public. It's because she was convicted of, of nonviolent crimes, um, I think insider trading or, or something like that. But she is prohibited from owning a gun for the rest of her life, absent a um, presidential pardon. So I started writing on it from that perspective, and that coincided with um, a, a number of mass shootings and high-profile um, uh, instances of gun violence. That it, it was just sort of a natural thing for me to start writing on, you know, because in, in the the aftermath of those, of course, um, you, you start seeing proposals for legislation that start putting burdens on law-abiding Americans um, and not getting at you know the root underlying causes of gun violence. So I started writing on it from an, an overcrim perspective. And then that sort of um, spiraled into, after Parkland, Heritage started up our, our school safety initiative. Um, this idea of looking at, um, you know, look, school shootings are devastating, what you know from a conservative perspective what what do we do about it how do we address these what is what is the reality of, of gun violence in schools um and, and to really be a conservative voice in the room um and, and it turns out this all started uh you know snowballing into looking at it from a mental health perspective looking at it from a second amendment perspective looking at um you know trends of gun violence and um and then lo and behold this is an issue that it turns out is not going away anytime soon. Um, and it's something I've grown to love um, and to really uh, appreciate um, even more as I dig into the history of the Second Amendment, um, into the, the history specifically of women with guns and, and minorities with guns um, and the ways in, in which gun laws, uh, especially the, the more restrictive ones, um, actively keep um, a, a lot of segments uh, of society from, from exercising their rights to a, to a fuller extent. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I kind of got here in a, in a roundabout way. Um, but thank God, because it is, it's been an incredible journey. And, um, this is really a thing that, that matters that it's, you know, I'm in the same boat as Aaron, you know, it's, it's fun to, to wake up every day and, and work on these issues and to keep learning about them. Amy, thank you so much for sharing about that, because we didn't talk about how you came to the Second Amendment when we were talking about setting up this conversation in the first place. And what you just said sparked my memory that Second Amendment advocates were really excited about Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court 
in part, I believe, because of an opinion she wrote on this exact overcriminalization issue that you talked about. What are the rights of nonviolent fe felons under the Second Amendment? And so I think a lot of uh, Second Amendment advocates saw that her willingness to even engage that at the appellate level, when a lot of judges are trying to keep their heads down because they don't want a paper trail that will disqualify them from being considered for the from the Supreme Court. At least that's the cynical interpretation of that. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with me about that, but that is the cynical interpretation of that. Uh, so a lot of Second Amendment advocates were really happy about her being nominated to the Supreme Court and obviously ultimately confirmed because of that. Do, do you have any recollection of that as well? Uh, I wasn't sure if uh, this was directed at, at me or Aaron. But oh, yeah, sorry, Amy. I, um, yeah, I, I uh, definitely remember. It. So it was a dissent in a case uh, called Cantor v. Barr, um, where it's, uh, it dealt with, uh, I believe, an individual who um, it was some sort of Medicaid fraud. Like, like he had submitted Medicaid receipts or, or claimed that his, his shoe inserts were you know, Medicaid approved when they weren't. Um, you know, so all throughout this, I mean, you're right. You had a guy that the government, the state, you know, everybody sort of agreed. Well, he's not violent. He's never been a danger to himself or others. Um, you know, why why are we essentially imposing a lifetime ban on possessing firearms for him? And uh, then Judge Barrett uh, was the lone dissenter in right. that. Um, and, and she was... Very, very, and, and this is this is, I think, what um, really excited Second Amendment advocates was the way in which she went about uh, formulating her opinion. Um, she was one incredibly um, uh, consistent with with digging into the text, history, and, and tradition of the amendment. And, you know, she did her due diligence. Um, you know, she, she didn't just sort of, you know, brush over history or, or the text. I, I mean, she really dug into um, important aspects of, of the history um, in a way that, again, was faithful to Heller, faithful to McDonald. Um, and it's not something that we've seen in a lot of uh, especially circuit court opinions regarding the second amendment. I, you know, I think a, a lot of, um, the, the way that I'd phrase it and, and Aaron, uh, you may or may not agree with me, but I, I think we're almost at a point within the, the circuit courts where, um, you know, Heller and McDonald for a lot of judges could be used to uphold basically any form of gun control imaginable, as long as you sort of like squint your eyes and, and tilt your head a little bit and, and just ignore what it actually means. Um, but uh, Judge Barrett refused to, to do that. Um, you know, she she did her job faithfully as a, as a judge, and that really came out in that dissent. Aaron, I want to ask you, since you are such an expert and you have written so many briefs and thought deeply about the Second Amendment, can you give us a little uh, explanation of the historical background of the Second Amendment? I think... You know, you hear so many people arguing about it who don't understand the history that uh, made our founders want to make sure that this right was enshrined in the 10 
amendments that were adopted as part of the Constitution. So could you give us a little bit of historical background on how we even got to the place where this was enshrined in our Second Amendment? Sure, yeah, and you know, I think there's, there's obviously competing narratives about this, and you know, that's this was basically the the question in the Heller versus um, District of Columbia case that the court resolved was which which narrative is historically accurate, and you know there was there was the idea that this was just sort of there to preserve the right to have a militia, uh, that was sort of the narrative for a long time. But you know, for for in in over the course of decades, many scholars once they really started looking at the history and understanding what was going on. Um, that's just not true at all, and that this was actually, you know, very much considered a core individual right, a right of self-defense, a right, you know, of of, of any person, any law-abiding person, to be able to have weapons to defend themselves, especially if you put yourself back in the context of the times people were living in, and it was also really, in a sense, a right that was about having rights against the government and the fear that. It's problematic if the only people who have access to arms and access to the means to kind of engage in defense are, are the government itself. And so, you know, it's really, I think, I, I think about it as coming from that kind of strong, like, libertarian sort of anti-government aspect of the founders, that the founders were very concerned with having rights against the government that said, you can't come in and take our weapons away because just like things like coming in and you know controlling our speech or telling us what religion we have to practice are just the means of taking away our foundational liberties, so too is taking away weapons and the right to defend oneself. So yeah, I think historically there's there's both just a, a real world pragmatic kind of natural rights aspect of it that developed in the sense of, everybody having a right to self-defense and to have a right to self-defense you need to be able to be armed in the same manner basically as somebody who's going to try to harm you and also in the sense of having this right that really is a, a, a bit of a bulwark against tyranny and against the government so i think historically you know you really see both of those strains in the way that the Second Amendment came about, and I one of the things that makes it interesting, especially as a constitutional matter, if you're, you know, like I am a big nerd about sort of constitutional scholarship and history and all that, is there's some rights that developed in the United States that are really developing from kind of what what the right was in England and what did we bring over with us, and we want to have the same right. And when it comes to the Second Amendment, I think, you know, there's certainly origins and parts of it that come from there. But part of it was wanting it was a bit of a bit of our the, the aspect of like rebelling against some of the history of England, because if you go back, especially in kind of the hundred years before the United States came about and look at the history of firearms in England, it, it was actually I mean, it, it demonstrates to you precisely how this the ability to control who could have firearms was just a mechanism to discriminate against minorities. And like at the time in England, most of this came up most prominently, as many things did then, in the context of religious discrimination. And it would be, you know, kind of taking between the battles of the Catholics and the Protestants, 
whoever came to power, the first thing you want to do is disarm the disfavored religious minority. And so there's really this historical strain of the United States coming about and saying, you know, we, we, we not only are going to protect your right to have whatever faith you want, but we understand the ways that you go about undermining that are not just by saying you have to be Church of England. They're also by giving the government the power to control speech and to control who has access to firearms. And so by saying you can't do those things, they're almost sort of secondary to, you know, these are the these are the mechanisms through which we've seen the government oppress the people, and we want to be sure those tools aren't available to the government. So that's, that's you know, I think that's really a huge part of the origins of where the Second Amendment came from. That makes me think of a recent book I have been reading by historian Paul Johnson on the history of the English people, which is fascinating. I think it was actually written in the 1970s, so it doesn't have some of the biases that we would have now if we were writing a history of the English peoples. But I think uh, exactly what you're talking about, there is that sense of we have new rights also in this country because that's part of the experience of the, the revolution against Britain and understanding the ways that government can manipulate people and what is the proper relationship between an individual and his or her government. Uh, so Amy, I want to ask you, do you have any input or insight on the historical background of the Second Amendment that you want to share that maybe adds to what Aaron has already talked about? Well, I think, you know, just sort of dovetail off of, you know, what Aaron went over um, about how the right develops, um, you know, in the context of, of England and the, the historical use of, of English monarchs of, you know, forming select militias to, to keep the rest of, you know, the disfavored minorities oppressed, um, you know, monarchs throughout history, um, but especially within England sort of intuitively understood this, right, that if you want to have um, complete power over the people, you disarm them and then only um, authorize arms for, you know, people who are going to carry out your will against the rest of them. Um, and w what's fascinating is that to, to fast forward post ratification, right, you still see the same um, the same theme, even in the United States, um, but in a slightly different context. Um, you know, again, that this understanding of gun control being used as a means of uh, of oppression. Um, in unfortunately, in the United States, the history that we see of that is gun control as um, explicitly and implicitly as a tool of uh, essentially keeping minorities subjugated, specifically um, uh, African-Americans, um, both before and after the Civil War. You look at the, the history of, of, uh, of gun control before the Civil War, a lot of it is actually explicitly racist. Um, and, you know, again, it makes sense in a historical context because um, in, for as, as grotesque as it sounds to modern ears, African-Americans at the time considered part of we the people. Um, and so when that right was stripped from them, it was a means of, of keeping them subjugated. So you'd have these racist gun laws about you know, black people, whether free or enslaved, being unable to, to carry guns, to possess guns, to possess ammunition, um, because there was this inherent understanding, uh, again, 
that if if slaves are armed, they're no longer going to be slaves. They, they're going to insist upon their rights as human beings. Um, and that is, I think, again, it just sort of underscores the importance of that. Um, and then you start getting into the, the 14th Amendment and, and how part of the 14th Amendment was actually to ensure that, that states had to apply this right equally um, to the newly freed men, uh, that they couldn't arbitrarily strip the right to keep and bear arms from them. Um, e- even though they were formerly slaves, and that what this actually does in practice um, is fully raises them to to the status of citizens. That they're no longer slaves or subjects; they have the right to defend themselves and their rights. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I think just to give that that broader depth of, of context that that this continues to be the theme of gun control and and the importance of that right to keep and bear arms um, is, again, the the ability of people to insist upon their rights, um, especially as against those who would strip those rights from them and and subjugate them. Wow, that is really great. Both of you have such great insights and you come at it from such a different way. I think it's helpful because you know, we all have these rights and we're advocating for them, but it, I think we all have individual experiences of how we see it and how we think, you know, kind of the lens that we should see it through. And I want to ask both of you, I'll start with Aaron and then Amy can chime in too, on the original meaning of the Second Amendment. If you take the, just the black letter law of the Second Amendment and what it says, it is hotly contested. We all already talked about how some people have tried to push the narrative that it was just talking about preserving militias. And I know you have heard this all the time, too. People saying, well, the Second Amendment only protects muskets because that's what people had at the time that it was written. So that was the original meaning. And of course, the rejoinder to that is, well, then I guess the First Amendment doesn't protect any electronic communications or anything that we have in a highly technological society in a way to broadcast our opinions or free speech about anything. I mean, it's just it's a completely absurd uh, bumper sticker slogan for advocates of gun control, in my opinion. So I'm curious, Aaron, first, and then Amy, uh, what do you see as the importance of looking at the original meaning of the Second Amendment? And and maybe just explain quickly for those who are not familiar with the concept of original meaning, what that means in uh, constitutional interpretation. Sure. So, you know, the, I mean, the concept behind original meaning is that the Constitution was, I mean, it's essentially a, a compact. It's people who chose how they wanted to be governed and what rights they wanted to have be part of the government. And part of that was also the ability to, to change the Constitution. It's not written in stone. Part of the, one of the important provisions of the Constitution is provision explaining how you amend it. But the idea is that, you know, we, we all are, we all agreed to something. And so the concept of original meaning is, well, you have to look at like what we actually agreed to back then and in subsequent amendments to the Constitution and think of it as these are the rights we we the people reserve to ourselves and understand them in the way that the people were reserving them rather than thinking of it as like should we have a second amendment I mean should we have a second amendment is, is a policy question it's an important question it's a 
good question to debate. If we don't want to have one, there's a part of the Constitution that very clearly lays out how to repeal the Second Amendment. But as long as we have a Second Amendment, the question shouldn't be, how can we interpret this in a manner that we think makes it like kind of most useful or best accommodated to today's needs? The question should be, when the people of the United States ratified this amendment, what did they intend to ratify and what rights did they intend to enshrine? And that's a principle that's not unique to the Second Amendment. I mean, that's that's a concept. Original meaning is a concept of how we interpret all the provisions of the Constitution. And we think about it not as what, you know, what today do some judges think should be in the Constitution, but what really is in it and what did everyone agree to back in the day? And so, you know, I think to me, just to... to reinforce scale what you said i think the key thing is look you got to be consistent in how you think about these things and if you would interpret every other right in the constitution in a way that takes into account how you apply the principle everyone agreed to to facts on the ground that change over time it can't be that like Yes, the First Amendment, of course, that protects email, but the Second Amendment is the one amendment alone in the Constitution <laughs> that is completely static. You know, and like, I, I just go back to the McDonald case. Um, the McDonald case, you know, the Heller case was about what the Second Amendment means. And then the McDonald case was about whether the Second Amendment applies to states. Every other amendment. All the justices, you know, for, for years they've all said they all apply, yet all of a sudden you've had four justices in the dissent who say, like, every amendment under the sun, of course, applies against the state when it comes to rights of criminal defendants, when it comes to First Amendment, you know, all that stuff, of course, applies against the state. Yet it comes to the Second Amendment, all of a sudden they discover, like, a new theory under which that's the one amendment in the whole Constitution that shouldn't apply to the states the same way it applies to the federal government. And you know, to me, this is part of what I always have enjoyed about Second Amendment work. And I mean, I'm not, a, I, I do a lot of Second Amendment work, but I'm just, I, I am a constitutional kind of Supreme Court lawyer as a general matter and do tons of other kinds of work too. And it's such an interesting area to me, Second Amendment work, because it really does force, you know, it really shows true colors of, of judges, of advocates, of everybody, because it's very hard for people to divorce their policy views about guns and the second amendment and whether we should have a second amendment from the historical question of what did the second amendment mean when the people who put it in the constitution ratified it in the constitution, put it in there. And, you know, one of those questions is a question for policymakers and one is a question for judges and the judges should be focused on the question of what it means, not whether we should have it or whether we need to update it or, you know, whether whether we should interpret it in some different manner because it's less necessary today than it was then. You know, those those are policy questions, they're important debates to have. But when you're talking about the original meaning of the Constitution, what you should be focused on is not what, you know, someone wishes the Constitution means, but what does it in fact mean in the context of when people uh, made that social compact to be governed by the terms of it. So I'm going to be a little bit of a devil's advocate before we go to Amy's interpretation of this. Uh, you kept repeating, and I agree with you, uh, that the people at the time decided that this was the compact, they were going to come together, they had a system to amend it. But the devil's advocate would say, 
The people who were deciding this was a very small part of the population. They were the elite. It didn't include uh, African Americans. It didn't include, obviously, the slaves. It didn't include women. <laughs> you know, none of us would have had sure. a say in this sure. at the time. Um, and then also, being the devil's advocate, people would say it it's too hard to change the Constitution. How many years have has our republic existed and how many amendments have we had to the Constitution? We have to rely on the courts to keep Americans safe from the scourge of gun violence. So what would you say to people who would raise those two points with you? Hey, I'd, I'd say a couple of things. I think first, to the point of the people who made the Constitution were not representative of everybody. I mean, you can say that as to everything in the Constitution, yet our solution to the fact that it was not a representative group of people who ratified the First Amendment isn't to say, so therefore we'll pretend like there's not a First Amendment. Our solution is, well, now we may need to make sure everyone understands that the First Amendment applies to everybody. It's not just confined to, you know, it's not it's not rights that only are for white men. Like that that's what we've done in in the majority of context, you say we need to extend the rights because they were on the right track by recognizing the rights. What they may not have done is recognize that everybody has an equal right to participate in them. So we fix the problem by extending it. And I think that goes to the second point, which is, yeah, we don't have a ton of constitutional amendments, but we haven't had any problem having constitutional amendments that ensure that everybody gets to participate in the rights. I mean, those are some of the amendments that, you know, are the, some of the most important constitutional right. amendments that came after the Bill of Rights. And so, you know, I, if we can do that, it's, it's not, I, I think the political reality is like, it's not that there's some structural impediment to getting rid of the second amendment. There's a political impediment to it because Every poll for a long time has showed that the vast majority of Americans support having a Second Amendment. Sure, when you get down into the details of what exactly what kinds of laws and exactly what kinds of policies should be permissible, exactly what kinds of firearms should be covered by the amendment, you know, there's there's a lot of debate about the details, but there is pretty widespread support for the view that there should be an individual right to keep and bear arms. And if people don't think that should be the constitutional right, then go convince more people of that and do it through the political process instead of getting some judges to impose your political will by fiat. Yes, I have often had the same reflection that sometimes the people who oppose the Second Amendment or want really stringent requirements on it basically not allowing anyone, anybody but the elite and favored people to have to be able to exercise the Second Amendment, I feel like they just don't want to engage in the political process, the hard work of getting out the vote, canvassing, getting uh, the people elected who will put the, the laws in place and that they want to shortchange that by having the courts uh, basically fine for them. And I think it was kind of shocking to people after the Newtown tragedy that President Obama and his administration were not able to push. I mean, he did push through a bunch of executive orders that were completely irrelevant to what had happened at Newtown. And that is frequently the case after these mass shootings, that there's this urge to do something, anything, and it's not anything related to what actually transpired. 
But I think a lot of people on the the opposition to the Second Amendment were surprised that given that horrendous uh, event that the Obama administration couldn't be more successful pushing through really stringent gun control laws. But I think it gets to your point, Aaron, that there's just not at, at present, and you look at gun sales in the last 12 months since we've been dealing with the pandemic, they've been through the roof. Um, so it seems like there is a disconnect between what some people, some legislators want to do and what the American people want. Amy, do you have any uh, reflection on that that you want to add at this point? Sure. So I actually want to pick up um, with, with what you just said about 2020 and, and gun sales that have just been uh, historically unprecedented, uh, something like 8 million uh, first-time gun owners. Um, I, I think the numbers I saw are, are something like 24 million firearms sold. Um, lots of uh, women, in particular, and African Americans, um, for the first time exercising their rights in 2020. Um, and when you look at why that is, I think this really hits again at the core of why this right exists. So I, I think a lot of these sales were driven in part, uh, in large part, because of a very real sense of just how fragile civil society is, just how fragile our reliance on government protection is, that, that often government can't or won't protect us um, from, from infringements on our rights. Um, you, know, you saw this with a, a summer of, of very widespread civil unrest, and that was on the heels of uh, you know, coronavirus where um, you know you had this feeling of oh my goodness is society collapsing you have police departments essentially saying look we're ravaged ravaged by COVID-19 if there's not a dead body please don't call us we won't show up Um, and and so there's very real feeling of wow these services that I rely on that that we form government uh, to, to have that may not actually be there you know we may have to rely on our natural right to self-defense both individually and collectively. And I think this gets back to the heart of what is the purpose of the Second Amendment? I mean, actually, I want to quote here for uh, um, just briefly from uh, the constitutional scholar Joseph Story, where he, I I think he really does a great job of wrapping this up. Um, You know, what is the point of the Second Amendment? What is its its original purpose and meaning? Um, And what he says is one of the ordinary modes by which tyrants accomplish their purposes without resistance is by disarming the people and making it an offense to keep arms, and by substituting a regular army in the stead of resort to the militia. Um, and then he he continues to, to go on about how um, this militia system is a check on the designs of ambitious men. And then he says, the militia is the natural defense of a free country against sudden foreign invasions, domestic insurrections, and domestic usurpations of power by rulers. Um, now, what, what is he actually saying there? Um, so you have this, this sense in which the, the American colonists were terrified of a large standing army, this idea of a select militia, a standing army that could oppress an unarmed people. And this idea of this is a government of people and by the people and for the people. Therefore, the, the people ought to have the power. This idea of a, a militia, um, basically of of all Americans, you know, all, all residents, all citizens trained in arms, um, being able to enforce their collective rights 
either individually, again, we, we maintain that right of self-defense um, to defend our individual rights or liberties, or, or whether it's against foreign invasion, which, you know, I, I know at the moment, no one's sitting here going, oh my goodness, Canada might invade us. Um, so we're very blessed to not have to think about that. Right. Um, but then domestic domestic insurrections, domestic usurpations of power, this idea of tyranny, um, that the point of the people being armed is to have that last-ditch fail-safe, um, you know, for when the government either can't or won't be there to defend your rights or liberties. Um, and then at the same time, for when the government might try to actively oppress your rights or liberties. Um, and so, I, you know, again, just go back to why are we seeing those gun sales in 2020? It's because people, possibly for the first times in their lives, started intuitively understanding that is what the right to keep and bear arms is for, for those moments um, when when government might fail us. I think that is really amazing to think about. Uh, that's a, a great quote from Joseph's story. I'm definitely going to look that up. And I think that idea that this past year, the 12 months, like you're saying, the civil unrest we saw this summer, I mean, the so-called insurrection at the Capitol, uh, definitely the um, the inability of the police to uh, respond in the way that they have in the hospitals, and so many of the things that we take for granted in our society just breaking down because of the pandemic. It has been unsettling for everyone. And I think it makes everyone kind of challenge their assumptions about how life goes and, you know, what what exactly are, I, I think, I, sh I should only speak for myself. I think I took for granted a lot of the safety and security that we have. And I'm sure that that has been the case for a lot of people around the country, probably around the world too. And on that topic, I would like, in the last 15 minutes that we have, I want to talk about current issues with the Second Amendment. Maybe Aaron can give us a preview of cases that we should be watching at the appellate level and at the Supreme Court. And maybe, Amy, you could talk about um, other types of issues that we have with laws that are being put forward. I know that the Biden administration uh, definitely has made noises that they want to get certain things accomplished during his administration. And then, uh, you know, you don't like to kick people when they're down, but I would say I, I would be remiss not to bring up the headline, headline story of Hunter Biden uh, probably lying on his firearm purchase form and the story about his brother's widow taking the gun away from him and throwing it into, I think, a dumpster in order to prevent him from doing harm with it. And just the irony, you know, people have problems and this is not, I'm not trying to bust on Hunter Biden, but I do think it is, it's seemingly strange to have the President of the United States pushing for more gun laws when the three of us know there are over 20,000 gun laws on the books already, and we definitely saw during the Obama administration that the Justice Department was not prosecuting uh, some of these very uh, tough gun laws on violent felons. They were just not um, pushing 
prosecutions when people lied on forms and they had the ability to prosecute them. There was really a decision not to prosecute them. So I, I'm curious about your thoughts, both of you, on this Hunter Biden story, too. So let's start with Aaron on a court preview. Sure. So so there's really, I think, probably kind of two, the two biggest issues that are being dealt with by the courts today are whether there's a right to carry firearms outside the house, um, whether concealed or openly, but just whether there's a right, you know, whether there's a constitutional right to carry firearms. The vast, vast majority of states in the country protect the right of their citizens to carry firearms. Um, but sort of the, basically a lot of the kind of coastal areas, the large populous cities do not. Uh, California, New York, you know, a couple couple of these big states do not. And the lower courts, the courts of appeals, have divided on the issue of whether there's a constitutional right to carry a firearm. Um, And the Supreme Court, you know, normally when you have that kind of debate, what the Supreme Court's job is to resolve it. Uh, The Supreme Court seems to just keep not wanting to resolve it. Um, so we've we've uh, personally filed I don't know how many petitions asking them to resolve it, uh, and you know some of them were they've they've been in different memberships, different breakdowns of who was on the court when they were filed. Um, we have one pending right this minute that the Supreme Court considered about a week and a half ago for the first time, and considered again last week, and we're just waiting to see whether they're going to take up that issue and resolve that dispute amongst the various courts in the the lower courts across the country and decide whether states can essentially prohibit ordinary law-abiding citizens from carrying a firearm. So that's, you know, a huge issue and one of the, you know, I think probably the, the biggest, most important pressing issue that's going on right now. There's a lot of debate about it as a historical matter, as obviously as a policy matter and all of that, but uh, one day, soon, sometime, hopefully soon, the Supreme Court will actually take it up to resolve. The other big issue, the big, I mean, there's a lot of issues, but these are just the two that I think kind of are, are the, the, the ones that have been litigated the most and have produced the most division is what kinds of arms does the Second Amendment protect? Um, so this often gets litigated in the context of so-called assault weapons and large capacity magazines which really are just like ordinary firearms that have minor modifications right. or, you know, magazines that can carry a capacity that's been standard for a century. Um, but so there's a lot of, you know, there's been differing opinions among the lower courts about whether restrictions, prohibitions on, you know, so-called assault weapon prohibitions or restrictions on magazine capacity are constitutional. And, um, that is, you know, come up in a variety of different contexts and itself has produced just, you know, different opinions, lots of dissenting opinions. And it's, it's both uh, a historical question and there's just a lot of debate about understanding kind of like, how do we, how do we ask the question of, okay, even if you accept that the Second Amendment protects arms, what are arms? I mean, it, I think we all agree it's not anything under the sun. Like, nobody really thinks, you know, you've got, like, a constitutional right to keep a bazooka in your house. But at the <laughs> right. same time, like, 
we also you, don't. You say that, but I've been on those planets, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've all had that. But, it, yeah. but then there was the, the Supreme Court in Heller, like the argument was made in Heller of, oh, well, what do you need a handgun for if you can have a shotgun? And the court said, no, 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 no. Like, handguns are the weapon of choice for people. They've been around for ages, and it's not a right to, like, one arm, and, you know, the government can decide what it is. And so... But in between those extremes, it, there's a lot of interesting questions about what should the test be? How should we think about what arms are in and what arms are out? Um, so I, I think those are really, you know, from just like a kind of constitutional litigation perspective, probably the two biggest issues being litigated in the lower courts. So I have a question for you, Aaron, that you might not want to answer given that you have to go before the Supreme Court justices all the time and you might not want to get this information out there. But I am curious if you have a favorite justice on the Second Amendment, on these issues. Now, I myself really enjoy reading Justice Thomas's frequent dissents on the Second Amendment, but I'm curious if you would share with us if you have a favorite justice on the Second Amendment. Well, you know, I, I, I'm never allowed to say anything about a favorite justice because I did clerk for a justice and, you know, fa- favorite's a dangerous word right. when, you, when you, you know, but um, no, I think I think Justice Thomas has been a great champion of Second Amendment rights. Uh, I think he has probably been the most stalwart champion at this point of Second Amendment rights. And, you know, and, and it also makes sense because I think, you know, he has for a long time been really a leader on the court in terms of, as we were talking about earlier, the concept of originalism. And so I think it's it's just easy and natural for him to look at something and say, like, I'm not here to decide whether having a Second Amendment is good or bad or judge people if they do or don't want firearms. My job is to think about what the framers meant at the time. And I think that particularly on this issue, that ability to kind of come at it from that perspective is is invaluable and has made it just a natural issue for him to be a bit of a, a, a leader on. All right, well, let's go to Amy and ask if you have any thoughts on what we just talked about and also if you could give us kind of a legislative update. I know that's Heritage Foundation's uh, sweet spot of what you all keep track of and try to keep people informed about. Sure. So, you know, look, a lot of the legislative updates in states, it, 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 there's a very clear divide, right? So you do have a, a slew of states, excuse me, a slew of states in, in recent years that have um, looked to remove barriers uh, to the exercise of Second Amendment rights. I think one of the most prominent examples of this um, uh, is uh, the number of states that have moved to a constitutional carry or a permitless carry framework um, that, that essentially, you know, if, if you are not otherwise prohibited from possessing firearms, you have a right to, to carry guns in, in public without um, obtaining a, a permit or, or getting permission from the state. It's just sort of presumed that you have it. Um, and then you then also have uh, the, the, the same, uh, the usual suspects that continue to find new and improved ways of getting between law-abiding Americans and the exercise of their Second Amendment rights. Um, you know, states like uh, California wanting to implement background checks for ammunition uh, purchases. The rollout of that was so bungled 
Um, it, it was, so I, I think that the initial... I've, I've personally like, been litigating that case and argued yeah. that myself. It's a, it's, a, it's a mess of historic proportions. Right. <laughs> right. And, California and, for you. Know, um, you know, you, 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 you then get some... What I, at the federal level, for example, you start getting more... Um, off their rockers, no chance of passing type of legislation. Um, you know, things that come to mind are, um, I think it's HR 127, where it's this national gun permitting licensing, licensing scheme um, that would essentially say you have to not only beg the government for um, permission to, to get a gun and, and go through this arduous licensing process, but as, as part of that, you actually have to um, prove to a, a psychologist that um, you're sane enough to own a gun by some you know vague, undefined standard where the government gets to de- determine whether or not um, your Second Amendment rights actually apply to you. Um, so th- things like that, where it's sort of like the, the pipe dream of gun control advocates that I, I don't think have a chance of passing at the federal level. Um, but you are continuing to see uh, other pieces of legislation at a, at a federal level that um, are concerning um, that, you know, again, as Aaron talked about, uh, they, they fall under these categories of, of cases that the Supreme Court hasn't yet taken up. Um, so it kind of has left the door open for, for legislation, things like um, re-implementing the, the federal uh, ban on so-called assault weapons, um, uh, expanding background checks, not just to include intrastate private sales, but to basically criminalize any uh, transfer of, of guns between people, no matter how temporary or low risk, uh, that there are a lot of problems with. Um, so, the, you know, th- things like that, I, I think, are more realistic, um, but still incredibly problematic. Um, But, uh, you know, again, until the Supreme Court steps in and clarifies some of these issues, um, specifically about, you know, the types of firearms that are protected, um, whether or not that includes semi-automatic rifles with a pistol grip instead of those without a pistol grip, um, you're going to continue to see pushes uh, at a federal level, especially, um, and in states that don't already have it that are sort of leaning toward gun control for things like assault weapons bans, uh, magazine capacity limits, and and those sorts of things. Um, They've been common to push for that for a while. It's going to continue to be common uh, until we get a clear ruling on it. I want to ask both of you to share where people can find you, what you're writing about, what you're doing, and uh, ask both of you if you have kind of a final comment. And I want to thank you both so much for joining me. When I was put in touch with both of you to arrange this clubhouse, I was so excited because there were other people in D.C. who care about this issue. And I just felt like we were kindred spirits right from the first time I spoke with both of you. So I appreciate it so much. So I'm going to ask Aaron first if you could tell us where people can find what you're writing about or doing just to follow along. And if you have any kind of parting words about the Second Amendment. Sure. So, you know, so my work, uh, you know, I'm more a litigator than a scholar. So where you want to find me is by looking at what cases are going on, uh, looking at things like, uh, you know, great resources like SCOTUS blog, which is a great blog for anybody who likes to follow the Supreme Court. Oh, yes. Um, you know, things like that where you can, when you can look at the cases, you know, if there's an interesting Second Amendment issue being litigated, probably somewhere out there I'm litigating it. So, uh, so, so that's the best place to look at what look at what 
what I'm doing. Um, and yeah, the, 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 the parting thought I would offer is whether you're, you know, kind of like consider yourself a gun person or not is, is sort of beside the point. I mean, that's, you know, like, like Amy, that's not how I came at being interested in and enjoying second amendment work. The second amendment is just in a way a microcosm for all the critical debates we have all the time about our constitution and about how we should interpret it and about what it means, you know, to, to be have ruled like a, a government of, you know, people ruled by law and laws that we decide on and that we agree upon and that we have, we have a degree of social compact. So it's, it just puts all those issues together in a great way that I think helps you better understand not just the second amendment, but the constitution generally, and to, to really be thoughtful about how do I distinguish between understanding what I think about policy and what I think about the law and what is it that makes those two things different and how can I be be sure that I, criti- I think critically about both of them and appreciate the difference between the two and how to make legal arguments and how to make policy arguments, how to make each of them work in service of each other. Oh, I love that so much. I want to like put that on a laminated card, the microcosm for all these critical debates. That is such a beautiful way to put it, Erin. And Amy, would would you give us your parting thought and also where people can find anything that you're writing about or what you're working on? Uh, absolutely. Um, so you can always um, see what's going on at thedailysignal.com and heritage.org, um, where we, we put up a lot of our publications and op-eds. Um, but honestly, the, the easiest place to, to find what's going on is if, if you're on Twitter, follow me. It's at Amy Swearer. Um, shameless plug for my Twitter, but it really is um, sort of the, the easiest place to, to figure out what it, what's going on, what I'm doing, what I'm writing. Um, you also get some gratuitous, cute p- cat pictures thrown in there. <laughs> We all um, love cat parting, pictures. <laughs> yeah. Um, parting words, uh, two, two quick points. Um, so my, my first is a public service announcement that I love to give uh, whenever humanly possible. And that is if you are in the area of the District of Columbia, the District of Columbia is a shall issue jurisdiction for concealed <laughs> carry permits. They do not make it cheap. They do not make it easy. But if you jump through all the hoops, they will give you a concealed carry permit. Which leads me um, to my next point, um, insist on the exercise of your rights. Um, insist on it whenever possible, um, even, even when it's unpopular to do so. And maybe this is a third point thrown in. Um, you, you can insist on your rights in good faith while still coming to the conversation, recognizing that at the end of the day, we're all on the same side. Um, you know, there's no side to gun violence. There's no side... Um, to, to wanting safer communities and, and a safer nation. What we're actually talking about is, is, is how to get there. Um, and a lot of times that gets lost in these conversations, but there's not um, this tension between the exercise of fundamental rights and being able to, to, to still enact policies that, uh, that, that, that save lives. These things are not in, in tension. They work together. It's not an either or, it's a both and. So continue to insist on your rights. Amen, Amy. I'm going to have to put that on a laminated poster too. Those were such excellent ways to close up this speech, this discussion between the three of us. 
And I'm Gail Trotter. I'm a liberty-loving, tyranny-hating lawyer based in Washington, D.C. I'm going to post this conversation on my YouTube channel tomorrow right in D.C. You can follow me on Twitter, Gail Trotter, Parlor, Instagram, Facebook. And it is so inspiring to have such educated, hardworking women who are advocating on behalf of the rights of all American citizens. And I just want to thank you again, Amy and and Aaron, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for putting this together. Thanks for having us.